Hello and welcome to episode 49 of God's Own Scale podcast. I am Sean Clark, your host. God's Own Scale podcast is sponsored by Coat d'Arms Paints and produced in association with Bacchus Miniatures and Pendragon Miniatures. This is another episode where there's no pre-ramble, apart from this, or post-ramble. Um, it's the, a chat with Henry Turner and Robert Dunlop about the Europe Asunder The Great War Kickstarter, uh, which has, as of today, as of release day, has six days to run. The pre-ramble and post-ramble will return for episode 50, and I'm making plans uh, for something a bit different to celebrate my half century of podcasts as always though thanks for listening and let's talk about six Hello and welcome to episode 49 of God's Own Scale podcast. I use this phrase quite a lot, uh, but I'm going to use it again. This is quite a special podcast uh, because I have two previous guests with me. Uh, One appearing for the second time, one for the third time. I think there's a a long service medal in it for three time uh, <laughs> three time appear three three time appearances. That's that's not great English. Uh, but I've got first of all, I've got Mr. Henry Turner. How are you, Henry? Hello, I'm very well. Just uh, sitting around in sunny Mexico. <laughs> Can you just go into a bit more detail about your current position? Uh, as as CEO of uh, Turner Miniatures, or no, no I'm thinking about your position. Yeah, you're inside a be- inside some sort of bag, aren't you? Or to <laughs> improve the yes, audio. Um, I, I, I hope that the listeners are enjoying this crisp audio quality because I was told that um, I'm echoing a bit today. So I'm speaking to you with my head inside a bag, which I'm told <laughs> is is best for everyone concerned, especially the onlookers. So, well, you're in a public space, aren't you? So yes, <laughs> I, I've got this image of you and. In Mexico with your head in a bag. But anyway, uh, we won't get distracted down that line. Uh, it's a wonderful opening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, th- this is the kind of um, content that the listeners come to expect, I think, of, of God's own yeah. scale as we approach 50 episodes. Uh, the other guest I have uh, is the third time uh, appearance uh, for Mr. Robert Dunlop. How are you, Robert? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Good. Thanks, Sean. I, I, I am being told I should have my head in a bag. <laughs> that's another story. That's very unkind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never, you never heard the compliment face for radio before, did you? I, I, I live by that mantra, actually. <laughs> I was at a, a war game show at the weekend called Partisan in, in Nottingham. And I, I had a discussion with one or two other content creators and, and made it clear that I'm quite happy with my face for radio. <laughs> it's why I don't do a video call. We just do audio. <laughs> uh, I've described this episode as special, not only because of the quality of, of the guests that um, I have with me tonight, but uh, for the subject matter, which uh, is returning to 
Kickstarters and 3D printing and STL files and all that sort of goodness. Well, I, I say goodness, it's stuff that absolutely scares me to death. But, Henry, um, we last spoke when you were releasing the European, Europe Asunder um, Napoleonic Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've something different for us now. Can you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've moved on from um, shackles, as you know. After about six nine months of staring at a, at tall pieces of headwear, you kind of want to move on to something different. And uh, I've uh, decided to shake the stick at uh, trying a more modern conflict, but still one that I think uh, is rather underrepresented. Lots of World War II stuff floating around, obviously, but I think the First World War, at least to me personally, is is much more interesting. I won't get into some historical diatribe about it being because uh, Germany actually had a chance of winning or anything like that, you know, unlike World War II. Um, but it's it's that wonderful crossroads, isn't it, between modern conflict but still having some of the pageantry and like the variety in unit types, costumes, and so on that just makes it really fun to work with, especially something that you're you're customizing a lot. Um, and I did promise myself that when I appeared here, I would be plugging uh, the versatility of what we're covering uh, for modeling other wars as well. Um, I'm sure we'll discuss this later, but we've got all kinds of like colonial troops, um, niche niche items like you know uh, French zouaves, fezes. So yeah, it's just it's just a wonderful period for um, for tackling something modern, but also with just a lot of this fun aesthetics. And for me as a war gamer, at least the aesthetics are what I enjoy most. So. And, and just to be clear, uh, the Kickstarter is called Europe Asunder, The Great War. Um, and from what I've seen so far, you're covering most of it, or certainly most of the nations involved. Yeah, uh, we've, I've taken a bit of a shortcut in that um, some of the Eastern and Balkan states are only being represented with blender assets. Basically, I'm saying to people, do it yourself, you know, <laughs> export them. Uh, instead, but uh, but yes, I I think I did promise one fellow that I would add the Greeks. I forgot to do that. That's just come to me now. But yeah, except for like the Greeks, I think we do have every major player at least. Um, what is it off the top of my head? Well, we got SDLs for um, for Germany, uh, France, and Great Britain in their early war, mid war, late war appearances. Uh, Austria, Hungary, Italy, Russia, uh, the Ottoman Empire, Anzacs, Brits. Uh, both like, you know, uh, Western Front Brits, but also like in overseas dress. Uh, and Arabs we've unlocked now. Oh, no, no, sorry, we haven't unlocked the irregular Arabs, just just regular Arabs, Ottoman Arab tree, but uh, soon on the stretch goals we have Arab irregulars coming up. Uh, and we still need to unlock America and Belgium. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, I think that's the full list. I don't know, Robert, if, uh, if I've missed any there. I think that was all of them. Yeah, I think that 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 covers um, certainly from from the infantry, and then obviously working towards cavalry, and also thinking ahead to some of the vehicles that, uh, particularly those that are underrepresented in in other ranges as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I'd have to recommend is everyone pulls up the uh, the stretch goal list and just uh, takes a gander there. It's all laid out as clearly as I can do it, but. Where we are now, we're at about uh, £10,500, so we're currently unlocking various light machine guns and then moving on to artillery crews, artillery pieces. And once we reach about the £16,000 mark, that's when we go on to just unlocking the fun stuff, um, 
I am holding out for uh, the Imperial Camel Corps. I think everybody wants to see that, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. I've got it in front of me, actually. It's very colourful um, and, and, and really clear because you, you strike through each each goal as you achieve it, which is, is great because that's a it's a one-click view of where you are on the, on the Kickstarter and with the stretch goals. I, I do find some Kickstarters, it's quite difficult to decipher just what you're getting for your money and, and what's been... Uh, uh, released, but uh, this this is great. Oh well, I'm glad because a, a spreadsheet is much easier than the pretty graphics that other people do, you know, with uh, preview <laughs> renders and these things. Well, it, it does it does the job. Um, you've heard his voice there. So, Robert, um, you've jumped in uh, to assist Henry uh, with this Kickstarter. Obviously, you're very well known uh, across the wargaming scene for your monumental epic games that you've put on over the years at the Jurist 6 uh, and you work with Great War Spearhead. Um, how, how did you become involved with this Kickstarter? Well, it actually stretches back to a previous podcast, Sean. Um, when you originally interviewed Henry, I, I'd had some experience with resin printing already and I had obviously worked on various designs and printed them myself, so things that were relatively easy to create, some of the artillery pieces, for example, or Minenwerfer, but I knew that figures were just going to be beyond me. Um, it's just not my thing to be able to sculpt at that level. And when Henry talked about how he had created the Napoleonic figures and, and the way he designed them to be able to um, reuse different components, in, like, for example, to be able to maneuver the heads in different directions and really customize figures to a level that just isn't possible with precast figures from, say, the, the sort of metal ranges or plastic yes. figures. And and I just got, I was fascinated by it. So I picked up on the Napoleonic um, Kickstarter and became involved in painting some of the figures and, and we just got to chatting. And as we as we discussed it, Henry said, yeah, he was thinking about World War One. So, yeah, I just, you know, made my expertise available and my printer. So I really, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. It, it, it appears to me, as, as a layperson uh, looking in, quite a monumental effort uh, that both of you have, have put into this. Because um, although the, the Great War might be seen as, well, it's, it's just British against German on the Western Front, and there's not much diversity in uniform or equipment type but goodness me the the stretch goals that you have for this they're just well it, it, i was going to say endless it's not quite endless there is an end to it at pound with an armored train uh which i would be delighted to see that would be incredible but how long henry did it take you to decide just what you wanted to include with this because it, it just appears 
all-encompassing. I have made what might be a bit of a poor uh, business decision, at least in, as far as competition are concerned, in that I actually have all of my plans uh, public. The links are there on my Discord. So um, I've, I've made brainstorms for every project I intend to cover. Um, one thing I often uh, link people who, who write me is uh, my prospective release schedule. It's like a five-year plan of every Kickstarter I want to make in the next five years. Um, and when I was putting that together, every Kickstarter I came up with an idea for, I went in and just brainstormed some content uh, under a model of a core component and two optional add-ons. Like that, I I want to be very formulaic. I especially think that's good for people who you know have some kind of would be right to say like brand loyalty. You know, who who, who come back and and buy repeated Kickstarters because they like the customizer, they like the product. So some consistency there is good, but. Anyway, uh, I, I go in there and for each Kickstarter, I just planned like core and two optional modules. And when I took that model to the First World War, uh, it seemed pretty obvious to split it by theater. And I, I don't know, don't know how much credit to give myself. Like World War One, I, I, I'm not really, I guess I'm not a layman, but it's not really my area of expertise. I'm, I'm not like Robert at all, but it just seems sort of self-evident that people are going to want Gilligan um, and of course, East and Western Front, I think most of us can point to those. And I just kind of took those ideas and ran with them because the kind of content that you would put in for Gallipoli could also be expanded into the Levant and the Near East. So that's what we did. And uh, Eastern Front, I just lumped together with the Southern Fronts. And part of it then, kind of cunningly, is going through, seeing what other manufacturers who've come before have already modeled themselves. Um, I would like to give a shout out to uh, Plastic Soldier Review, which is perhaps a very strange source to use for your history, but when I was putting together Wargaming Armies in the past, the, the, what I would do is I would always read their reviews because uh, they had such good insights into like uniform and equipment points. And now they're especially useful because when I want to model something, I, I look up another kit on Plastic Soldier Review and I just read their review and the negative points and I just take that as my like not what to do list. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination of things. It's some, it's some planning, pre-brainstorming, and copying what other people have done, and sort of just reading the market, I guess. And I think especially if your product is about modular, customizable miniatures, uh, people are going to want some uh, crazy, varied things. Um, I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this already, but I'm really hoping people will use these blend files like for 1890s kind of colonial conflicts or even adapting them perhaps beyond World War One, I. I think you could do some early World War II stuff with this. Um, on the Kickstarter page, I have a Chinese warlords model that I've cobbled together uh, after a, a, someone on the Discord suggested it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that was the most long-winded way I could have answered that question. So. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I want to talk about Blender shortly. I know uh, we spoke about that on the previous uh, podcast, but... Uh, Robert, I, I just wonder—I know you've got quite a quite a setup there for for printing, and I've, you've learned the art of of printing the, these models out. Just for the, oh, you'd have, have to live under a rock, I think, not to be aware of what three D printing is and uh, STL files are. But ju just for the lay person, just go through uh, what that is. What is an STL, for instance? So an, an STL file is a file that is generated by software that is used to create three-dimensional figures or 
vehicles or designs of, of any description. And with an STL file, you can upload it into what's called a slicer application, piece of software that sets up that three-dimensional description into something that a printer can print as a series of layers, very, very thin layers that ultimately go to create the three-dimensional figure typically in resin. And there are other types of files that are very similar. You'll, you'll also come across things called OBJ files. They all do the same thing, basically. They are generated by different 3D software applications, but they all do the same basic job of creating this description in computer language of a three-dimensional object, which you can then put through a printer. Okay, so um, just do they take any particular IT skills to use? Is it something that a beginner could jump right in with as long as they've got a, a half-decent printer and some ST files, could they pr be producing their own figures relatively quickly? Well, this is where I think the way Henry has thought about and created the SDL files is really impressive. It's possible, yes, to take something literally off the shelf and print it if the three-dimensional figure or object is designed in such a way that the printer can handle it without you having to go in and make tweaks to it. If you're printing something in layers, you've got to be very careful that suddenly out of nowhere, you start printing a layer that has no supports to be able to hold it. So for example, if you've got a figure that's standing, then that's great because the feet then support the legs, support the lower part of the body. But if, for example, the arm is off to one side and bent, the elbow suddenly appears as one of the layers. And if it hasn't got a support that props it up from the base that you're printing from, you get all sorts of problems. So that's where Henry has thought incredibly carefully about how to create models that are really dynamic and have real character to them but they don't need somebody to know how to put supports on them. It, it's a really big step forward and makes it so much easier for nov you know, somebody who's quite new to this field to be able to just pick it up and run with it for sure. I, I would like to say I owe uh, Robert a tremendous amount of thanks because uh, he went through a lot of STLs that my tired eyes had uh, gone over a few times and not noticed obvious silence on. So thanks so much for that. Um, it, it's true about the, the dynamic poses that there is such a world of difference between designing black powder Napoleonic models because the majority of those models are in a marching pose where I can have the left hand, say, connected to, wait, left hand or right hand, one of the hands connected to the leg and the other hand holding the musket from underneath and sort of clipping into the torso. So no external support is necessary on the model. But if you've got like a guy who's, say, uh, an officer firing his pistol and the... Um, uh, the handle of the, the pistol is coming down beneath his hand that is outstretched, it needs a support. So the, these are the first six millimeter figures I've put out that uh, had 
widespread use of external supports on them. And I, I have tried to configure them so that they're ready to go without any support work being necessary on the part of the user. But that, that, there has been a lot of trial and error with that. Um, on, the face, on my Facebook group, I had to ask people to do test prints for me, like en masse, just to see if the supports were well placed, if they were thick enough. So this is quite a world of departure from, from the Napoleonics. It, it was much trickier to, uh, to pull off. But uh, it's necessary if you want to have good-looking modern poses rather than you know, people marching in a regimented style. Yes, because I, I guess in a um, 18th or 19th century um, rank-and-file army, you don't need as many sort of pose variants if you want that marching pose. And maybe a figure looking to the left or the right or slightly in a different step, but uh, in... in in modern warfare, particularly something like World War One, you you really need as many different poses, don't you, as possible. I think we have twenty-eight per um, per uh, infantry set. That's including the MG gunner and assistant and officers. Uh, and that that's an impressive number. But you mentioned something called the blender. Let's let's talk yeah, about exactly. what that does. Okay, um, I'll, I'll operate under the assumption that people listening haven't necessarily listened to uh, the, the last time I was on here, so I'll start afresh. Um, Blender is a piece of free 3D design software, which I've, well, I, I do all my work in it, but the Blender files that I give for this Kickstarter and my previous project, I've kind of appropriated and configured to work as a sort of custom miniature exporter. And how far you want to go with that? Uh, well, it depends on the scope of your ambition, I suppose. Uh, at its most basic, you have on the right side of the screen a kind of overview where the models are organized into different folders. And these folders can be toggled on and off. So at, at the most basic level, I might have, say, a soldier standing ready. And I can toggle off a pickle halber and toggle on um, a German bush hat. And then I have a figure that I could use in the, in the Near East, like the German... Um, Oh, Robert, what was the name of the German center sent to Palestine? Uh, oh, oh yes, the Yodrum. Yeah, I, I, anyway, I want to model them, but yes, that would be a basic example. Uh, but otherwise, you could go a step up beyond that, and let's say you don't want to just toggle options on and off. You can uh, move pieces. Uh, you might orient the guns around slightly differently. So, for example, with my American Civil War figures, some people like to have the muskets at slightly different angles, just so the marching regiments don't look so um, uniform, rotate heads. And if you want to get super ambitious, you can try the, um, the sculpting tools, uh, things like the, the pose brush tool uh, to change the angles of arms and things. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's just these three tiers of difficulty from the most basic, just, just toggling parts on and off. And I've tried to put in a huge like, amount of options for that. There's different, um, uh, different legs different uh, garment types, like single-breasted, double-breasted jackets, uh, things that can be toggled on and off the hats. For example, the Italians can have some goggles on their um, Adrian helmets if maybe they're at the Alps or something. Uh, different pieces of facial hair, uh, or just, just rotating pieces, putting them around. And I do have um, YouTube tutorials up on how to do this. I do want to apologize, though, to um, backers of the Napoleonic Cavalry Project, because as I've been speaking, I've just remembered I still have not put out a promised tutorial about um, armature usage. Now that I've publicly conceded that, I hope that's proof I'll have to get to it. <laughs> um, 
You've made the commitment now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did promise it, and ultimately, uh, I do. I do make public roadmaps. Every project I do has a public roadmap where everything I've committed to do is listed. People can comment on it. It's a public document, so if they want to remind me of something I've forgotten, they can. But uh, it is out there. It is all public record, and I think I failed to do is in black and white. So. Uh, if, if 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 anyone's listening who's back something else and I've forgotten something I haven't remembered, just give me a kick up the butt, I'll get to it. Like I could be a bit sketchy at times. Robert was very kind to send a package through with samples um, of half a dozen nations by the looks of it. Uh, I'm struggling to find words, uh, to be honest, uh, to, to say how nice these are. What, what strikes me... Sp- First off, is the detail. I think a lot of it is just the technology, really. I mean, um, printing, I think, does more for 6 mil than perhaps any other scale because uh, at best, at like 28 mil, printers are just trying to sort of rival or achieve parity with existing plastic manufacturers. But at 6 mil, you can achieve results with resin printing that, in detail terms at least, are arguably, I have to be very diplomatic with my words here, right? But uh, arguably, bring out more detail than metal might. Metal obviously still has a very satisfying weight to it. It's nice. I, I do love metal minis, but that's one advantage it has. But I, I just wanted to say on the matter of scale, um, I do market these as being 6 to 15 millimeters. But one thing I think a lot of people don't appreciate about 3D printing is the, the scaling options you have, even with just an SDL, not the Blender file. So uh, we have a public spreadsheet where we have suggested scaling settings where, for example, this is off the top of my head, but if I wanted to print uh, one of the six mils at, say, 15 mil, I could do it as being 200% in size on the z-axis, so height-wise, but only 180% on the x and y-axis. So the model is effectively slim just a little bit. So if people have problems with the proportions, and I certainly understand that, um, there are little tweaks you can make. But one kind of problem, I suppose, of trying to bring people on board um, with this is if you don't have painted examples and you're relying on computer renders, they can be a bit misleading because you go on the Kickstarter page, you look at these graphics of these large pictures of, say, German World War One infantry, and yes, the heads look bulbous, the hands are oversized, um, but that's because you're looking at a model that is like under eight millimeters in height, and you're looking at it taking up half your monitor screens really zoomed in. Of course, it's going to look a bit crazy. The, the proportions are intended for for six mil. Um, and I did share uh, some renders on one Facebook group. I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the World War One wargaming ones. Uh, ah, I think it was the Flames of War Great War group. And uh, this this guy just wrote um, uh, they're, 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 they're so bold as they're like dwarves. All I could write was, well, welcome to the world of six mil, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's, uh, yeah, um, I think as we all know across any social media platform, there will always be that guy, I think, is the way that we'll, we'll mention it. Um, so, uh, Robert, you, you kindly printed these samples off for me, which are in front of me. Um, just for the listener, how different is it to deal with these figures as opposed to traditional metal figures, uh, as in how you prepare them, how you paint them, how you use them? What, what are the differences? I think there are two major differences. One is the ability to personalize the figures more. 
So for example, I can print them out in a long row that is then easy to put on a painting stick. Or I can print them out as individual figures, which I which I did in, in the ones I sent you. And I printed them on a, what's called a raft that allows you to just pop that on, say, a piece of blue tack on the top of um, some, like a large dowel or something, to be able to paint each individual one. So th there's this configurability at that level. But I think the the other major difference, of course, is that resin has different characteristics to metal. There are different types of resin, of course. But one of the things that you, you have to be more careful about is removing the supports, for example, that prop bayonets attached to rifles. It just takes a very, very sharp knife and a little bit of extra skill compared to just using side cutters, for example, if you are um, removing an equivalent piece of flash from a from a metal figure. The figures themselves, you can drop them, even from great heights, which I have done, <laughs> and uh, they 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 are very sturdy in that respect. Um, but the but the it's just to me it's also the quality, the consistency. Um, there are some manufacturers where you get variations in in the size of the figures and I, I like the fact that when you print them with resin they're just a consistent size whatever the you know whatever the pose is um, you don't get that variation in the figures themselves which which is pleasing any advice uh, in particular for, for dealing with some of these poses uh... I, I not snapping off bayonets. Do you use hot water, or because you've at this point you've had more hands-on experience than I have with the with the figures, ironically. Um, the the way well, there's two ways uh, of doing it. Um, one is when with, with resin printers, what, what yours what you're doing is you're taking a bath of resin typically, and then there's some form of um, um, external light slash heat that enables the resin to be um, fixed into a solid in these layers that we were talking about before. So in, in that in that situation, my particular system uses laser that's focused at a particular point and it runs backwards and forwards on each layer and, and it fuses the resin. Uh, to make this solid figure. Um, others use ultraviolet light to do the same thing. But when the figures first come out of the printing process, they're still relatively soft. They need hardening. And some people like to remove the supports at that stage because they will come away quite easily and often you don't even need to use any sort of cutters at all. With things like bayonets, you have to be somewhat careful because when you put the figure through what's called the curing process, 
which hardens the resin to the form that you see, Sean, when you open that parcel. That, that curing process, obviously, in some cases, what I've seen happen is the bayonet will curve because it doesn't have the, the support to anchor it. And so typically what I do is I leave the supports on for things like bayonets or equivalent, quite small objects that are very fine in detail. And then I just use a very sharp scalpel and either lay the figure sideways onto the um, modeling mat. You know how you get these quite large, sort of sometimes green, sometimes blue mats? Yeah, the, the cutting mats, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So if you lay the figure on its side, you can typically cut down using the mat as the support and it will allow that to just cut through. Or the other way you do it is you just finally pair it off with a couple of strokes from one side and then the other and it'll just come away without any problem. So the, the risk is if you're not careful, in some cases you can break the bayonet. And, and that happens with metal figures too. But with resin figures, you just have to be that little bit more careful with those very fine features like that. I'm, I'm clipping um, the, the figures from these, uh, did you call them rafts, these uh, sort of bases with the supports on. Um, and I, I've never handled, um, uh, no, that's not quite true. I did have some from Aaron at Project Wargaming, but... Uh, if, if this kind of material, I've never handled them before, and I've, I've clipped a couple of dozen off in, in, in no time. It's um, and only two casualties, but that's just because I'm ham-fisted. <laughs> they, they'll end up uh, having been the victim of a mortar shell, I think, at some point. Um, so uh, that, that's well, the, the great thing is the great thing is, Sean, you can just whack out a few more. Yes, yeah, well, this uh, this is the point. Once you've got your STL file from Henry, you could do the BEF in one-to-one -one scale, I guess. Absolutely. Well, let, let's, uh, if we bring out the big guns, Robert, how much would you say it costs per figure? I know in your case it's going to vary from perhaps a, an ordinary printer. But... Oh, uh, you're talking probably a tenth of the cost. Right. At, at least it's it's... The, the cost of the figures, particularly at 6 mil, are tr is trivial. It's Yeah, so less than a penny. Oh, yeah. Well, in some cases, it's, um, yeah, you, especially when you print multiple at the same time. It's, yeah. It's very, very cost-effective. Negligible, yes. Um, so once you've clipped them off these rafts or, uh, and, and away from the supports, how, how, are you managing, how are you handling these uh, to get them painted? Is there any... Do you have to wash them? Is, is there some special undercoat that you use? Uh, you wash the figures after they come out of the printer before they're cured. So, so that process is, is quite important because you wash off any uncured resin or, or any resin that hasn't been semi-hardened by the laser or the UV light. So there's no kind of equivalent of um, the demolding um, um, residue that you can get on figures sometimes. Yes, yeah. So basically once you, you, you can either, typically what I do is I leave them on the raft 
and just make sure I've cleared away any supports, for, for, for example, bayonets, as we've discussed. And then it's just a quick, um, I, I typically use the Tamiyar light gray myself primer. And from there, it's straight into the, the process of painting. And the quality of the figures is so good that the painting process using the methods that I've developed is very straightforward. And, and part of what I've committed to do for Henry is to create an illustrated guide to painting the World War I figures, similar to what I did for the irregular miniatures figures. Oh, I yes. Think you, you've seen that guide. I, I have, yeah. It's very good, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it on air because uh, I'm looking forward to it. Now you've committed to it. No backing out. Sorry, you're breaking up, Henry. If I could give one piece of advice to anyone who's thinking of picking up a printer, this is like my absolute mandatory. If you listen to any one thing I say, listen to this. Get a wash and cure station because I didn't, and I learned through pain and tears uh, that it's it's a world difference in terms of quality of life in several respects. Um, what do I mean by that? You'll find some guides about printing on a budget will suggest using Tupperware with some alcohol in there and sort of just manually washing your minis. Um, even if you do a good job of that, you keep the alcohol clean, you replenish it, you get these sticky residues all over the place. It makes everything really intensive. Just spend like the hundred quid or so on getting a, an Elegoo wash and cure station. There isn't any cubic one as well, but I don't like it. But what's wonderful about this is you just put it next to your printer. When your print finishes, you take the bill plate out. You don't even take the models off. You just put that in the wash and cure station, leave it rinsing for like five minutes. And then I get hot water, uh, immerse the bill plate in this hot water in like a tub, and then just remove the miniatures, put them in a box, let them dry. Um, it it makes everything so much more like a kind of almost factory process versus what was previously a very messy, very labor-intensive approach. So, yes, uh, literally your first purchase should be your printer and the second concurrent purchase should be a wash, uh, should be a wash and cure station. I'm not sure if Robert would. I know Robert has one, but I don't know if he would agree it's so critical. But for me, it was life-changing. Oh, absolutely. No, I totally agree. Otherwise, you end up drinking the alcohol because it's the only way you can stay sane. <laughs> And, and and just to be clear, if any manufacturers of 3D printers, uh, because there are more than Elegoo and uh, what was the other one, Robert? Oh, um, Elegoo and the Anycubic one. Yes. Yeah. So there's yes, more. There's so, quite a few. Yeah. There's, there's quite a few. Um, if any uh, any manufacturers are out there interested in sponsoring a podcast, who would gladly uh, take your wares off you and and try these things out using the Henry's SDL files, you know where to contact me. Um, <laughs> uh, for this impoverished uh, podcaster. Um, Henry, um, the sculpting that you've, uh, the 3D design, sorry, that you, you've put into this, what sort of time frame are we talking about to get up all of these various sculpts and designs uh, and bits of equipment? I began work on this in February. Uh, that's when I did my first prototype, Tommy's, uh, bothering Robert every 30 seconds with <laughs> question after another. Um, he loves it though, don't you, Robert? You, you yeah. love those asinine oh, questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, the thing is, um, I, I work on multiple projects at once, so it's kind of difficult to, to quantify how well I would have worked if it had been full-time, but 
I, I would say that uh, if I'm like super motivated, because unfortunately, I don't know, maybe if I'm going to get all pretentious, I could say I'm a creative, you know. Um, <laughs> have to wait for the yeah. news. <laughs> yeah, well, no, basically, yes, if I'm highly motivated, I can go in almost like a kind of manic state and, and crank out a kit within a day. But um, under normal circumstances, I would say if I'm giving it my full time, then I need two working days to get like the basic infantry equipment and assets uh, for a nation done. But that's actually the easiest part, like sculpting rifles and webbing and uh, knapsacks and whatnot. That's, that's pretty easy. The difficult part is uh, rigging up poses and then also preparing the exporters themselves. I think if this had been an SEL only project, it would have been turned around in half the time. But you're, you're putting things into a blender file and you're cleaning it up. Uh, one thing I want to say is I want to apologize to everybody who backed the Napoleonics because those files were very poorly compressed and optimized. It meant like uh, they were taking up like two to three gigs per file. The current Great War files are at about 400 megabytes a file. So learned a lot there. But yes, just, just tweaks and how to position, organize everything. I think that's actually the, the bulk of the work. Um, yes, so I, 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 under ideal circumstances, I want to be releasing a Kickstarter uh, every three or four months. And I have two development paths. So the, the idea is that in a perfect world, as I'm finishing, as I, sorry, as I pass the halfway point on one Kickstarter, uh, I launch the next one. So they're kind of alternating releases. And that's, that's, that's partly uh, in, in pursuit of profit, of course, but also because it's just nice to have a variety of my workload, to be honest. Um, the Napoleonics, very grateful for the support that got. It's the most successful thing I've probably ever done with my life. Um, but after a while, like I joked to you before the recording, uh, you, you just you need some variety. You need to change things up a bit. So uh, I'm currently working on Seven Years War models. Uh, backers of the last Napoleonic Kickstarter actually got preview versions of those figures, and I'm enjoying that immensely. Uh, both both World War One and the Seven Years War. I'm actually I'm very happy creatively right now because it's two very fun topics. Um, yeah. And, and I imagine without too much effort, some of this stuff could be translated back 50-odd years to the sort of late 19th century yeah, I'm, Prussian I'm, conflicts I'm, and Austrian I'm conflicts. Sure, I'm sure we're going to see some Franco-Prussian War conversions. Um, I mean, um, so so obviously I, I think it's it's just a matter of time that some people have their own sculpting skills. I mean, Robert, Robert, you were very um, self-deprecating about your sculpting earlier, but you might recall that during the World War One project, you actually sent me some World War One figures that you'd sculpted using the Napoleonic assets. So yes, I'm sure someone with some talent will um, will cobble things together. I just ask that uh, they don't then go on to use them as the foundation of products they go on to sell. That's that's naughty, but um, yes, absolutely. But absolutely, like credit the uh, credit the creator. Credit him with credits, preferably. Yeah, well, even better. Yes, <laughs> in, in whichever currency is uh, popular. Well, I think people do people underestimate what it takes, and th yes, it, it's kind of interesting from my perspective to do some of these things, but having dabbled in it in that way, I can really appreciate, you know, the effort that Henry's able to put into it and, and the creativity as well. And that's difficult to sustain. I think it's unlikely that others would be able to 
you know, take some of these kind of basic assets and kind of re-engineer them. Uh, it it could be a little bit interesting for a little while, but no, it's not something you can you can continue to work at unless you're you're committed to it and and and, and enjoy it. And and Henry, that those skills that you've developed, you know, you you've been able to apply a lot of that to the World War One range, haven't you? You've been able to bring over a number of things which are, are reusable for a start, but also the processes that you've developed and the understanding of how to position things, etc. Um, all the time you see your ability to generate these figures is, is getting quicker and better. Yes, and uh, I think with the Seven Years' War especially, that's going to be quite fast to turn out, I think considering the crossover with proteomics. I, I do want to say, um, maybe I overstated my fears the last time I spoke uh, about what copyright or copying whatever. I think uh, when I first got started in this, I did kind of willfully make a sort of a compact with the community in the sense that I, I provided these Blender files. It's sort of like a mathematician who shows they're working out, you know. Um, People can go through them. They can basically piece together how I do things. I think a lot of people, myself included, didn't even realize that uh, 3D designs could be multi-part. Uh, I'd always assume that people that sculpted things do it the same way like you would with a single blob of putty or whatever. You know, I didn't realize when I first started designing ships, it blew my mind when I found out Simon Mann very kindly showed me that his ships are all different bits. Um, but what, what I want to say, yes, I, 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 I think there is an exercise of trust there and really, War gamers overall, like, we do care for the hobby, we care for its health. I think most people wish me well, most people very kindly uh, support my work, and uh, they do that because it's a mutually beneficial thing, you know, like, um, the, the longer I work and the, the the fact that I can actually do it as my sole means of income uh, means more stuff you want to see covered gets covered. Um, a common discussion, and I don't want to derail us too much, but a very common discussion had among 3D creators is how to react to piracy. It's a very pronounced problem for people whose work is, and again, I have to be careful, but let's say derivative of existing intellectual properties. Um, people don't feel so many moral qualms about perhaps spreading that stuff around without paying for it because they think, well, it's already sort of stolen anyway. I've not seen that to anywhere near the same extent in the historical wargaming community. I'm not personally aware of my work ever having been distributed um, like that, and I, I'm very grateful for it. What, what I'm trying to say is I think you can kind of take a positive view of the community and, and trust them because uh, most of us, we're invested in the hobby and we want, we want that to do well. And I think people appreciate that my work is original and what, what goes on to make it, so. Yeah. I, th I think from my perspective, I mentioned this, I think, a couple of podcasts ago um, about a more traditional manufacturer of uh, terrain, actually, who'd put a post out to say that post in the post-COVID, well, we're not post-COVID, but I, I think you know what I mean, that we're, we're through um, the worst part of the pandemic and, and lives uh, are generally returning back to normality. We're now in in sort of a, a, a cost of living crisis, and that he's feeling the impact of that. Um, and he put a plea out on his social media to say, "Please consider buying some of my product." Now, 
I think an average building in, in six mil from him is three or four pounds. So for the for the for a ten pounds you might get three buildings, say. Um and my my take on it is that if we as wargamers want the nice things, then we need to put our money in our pockets. And I appreciate that we are in a somewhat of a cost of living crisis at the moment, but um What's the what's the pledge levels that we're talking about for this Kickstarter, Henry? Oh, uh, let me remind myself. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that was a, a low baller for you. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. Um, just if you want to just get the Western Front SCLs by themselves, it's it's thirty five pounds. And annoyingly, Kickstarter's amazing design means I can't actually view my own add-ons. So when people write me to ask how much things is, I, I have to have to guess almost, but as I remember uh, each of the STL modules, they're all 35 pounds, but there are bundles. Unfortunately, one guy did write me to say he hadn't noticed the bundles and he bought everything individually, but um, I'm still working out how to do that for him. But anyway, um, yeah, at the bottom, uh, there is a one that says all STL files, which is 70, so you effectively get one of them for free, so that's a reasonable offer. Um, if you want to get uh, just the Western Front Blender files, that's that's 15 quid on top of the STL, so it totals at 50. Uh, if you want to get everything, like all the STL files and all the Blender files, uh, that's 95. And I know like um, that feels quite steep up front, I guess, if you think 95 pounds for an entire set, but when you consider that even not counting stretch goals, that's what you get: British infantry, French infantry, Germans, Austrians, Italians, Russians, Anzacs, Ottomans, and Ottomans, plus the blender files which have all their various toggles in, and any stretch goals we unlock. I think it works out quite reasonable. And nobody's—we uh, did do a survey at the end of the Napoleonics, and I did ask about price. Uh, most people said they were fair. Um, the thing is, it does represent a saving of when all this actually does get released, because uh, you know, as, should, as it should be with any Kickstarter, you're you're financing a prospective range, right? Something that's in development. Um, and when uh, when it does re release, I will put them up as individual kits. You know, I'll be selling like 1918 Brits separate from 1914 Brits, and they'll be like $15 a pop. So it, it does represent a saving. Um, I don't know, I guess I'd put it to Robert. Robert actually purchased the last one, so he's a he's a customer. One with a vested interest now, perhaps, but... Uh... Well, from my perspective, you know, particularly as, as Sean said in the introduction, working with these large historical uh, war game um, it's almost like reenactments, I was going to say. Um, you, you're talking armies of, well, when we did the Battle of the Marne, it was 10,000 figures. So when you're able to print off 10,000 figures from from a 90-pound bundle, yeah, it, for me, it's it's an absolute no-brainer. <laughs> uh, this, this, was, this was the point, really, Henry, that I was, I was getting at. That, and I know we've... Uh, Robert mentioned about the negligible cost, really. Once you set up, clearly there's the setup cost of getting the printer, getting the the, uh, the wash thing, uh, and your resin. But um, when, once that's out of the way and we've, you've bought these STLs, then Robert printing off 10,000 figures is, is going to seem like small fry, isn't it, compared to uh, more traditional routes of, of buying these figures. Um, so the value is, is self-evident, I think. 
I'd also say um, it, it is a valid argument that people make that, you know, there's the setup cost. Um, well, how to put this, online when you see 3D, 3D printing discussions, people ask how many print jobs until I've made back my money. That is a valid argument, but another thing is, again, the figure customization, the level of detail. Like, obviously, it depends on how you feel about how particular materials feel. But, like, these are figures which actually have pronounced fingers. As you said, there are visible moustaches. You can see their eyes and things. Like, they're, they're pretty detailed individuals. So I, I, I hope that they appeal to people on multiple levels. A lot of the people buying these aren't even 6 mil gamers. They do just scale them up um, 10 mil, 15 mil. I do feel it is pushing it to go past 15 mil. They do look a bit chunky. But if you have an acquired taste, maybe, maybe that's a fine thing. Um, you, you made your plug earlier to... Uh, printer manufacturers that you want to want to maybe a deal. I think I'll do the same. Someone someone's asked me why we don't get these in museums. So if anyone from uh, the Imperial War Museum is listening to this, please get in touch. I'd like that as well. Maybe we'll send uh, and can send a link to this episode off to the uh, War Museum and we'll see where we get with that. But um, particularly if you got somebody like oh, I don't know uh, maybe Robert Dunlop to paint up ten thousand figures <laughs> as a display. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know what's the uh, the problem with the connection at the moment. <laughs> it's it's very temperamental. It it's very yeah. temperamental. <laughs> but uh, I, tell, I, I, I tell you what, though, a, a resin pile is a lot lighter than a lead one. <laughs> They can be just as big, though, can't they? I mean, my lead oh, pile's quite big. They're, they're bigger. They're bigger. Oh, they're bigger, right? I can tell you. I can tell you. There's a, there's a designer, uh, and I know Henry's seen his work, um, Marcus Bergman, a New Zealander, who, who's produced some wonderful, wonderful, typically one one-hundredths um, scale um, tanks and, and other vehicles from both First and Second World Wars. And when I got hold of them, I, I, well, I can print off a whole Russian battalion of <laughs> T-whatevers, and uh, I did. I haven't painted them. I don't know whether I'll ever get around to it, but, yeah, it's just as seductive as um, a lead pile. That's <laughs> and I, I think this is the point, really, that... Uh, I've heard the argument, Henry, as you've you've highlighted there, that how much is this going to cost to set up? But once I've purchased your STL files and printed off my 10,000 figures to re recreate the Marne, I can then go and print off the buildings for that. And I can print off some walls and fences, and I can print off a Napoleonic army tomorrow. So uh, you, should be, you should be very careful. It, it's very easy to get impulsive with digital purchases. That that is one issue. <laughs> well, also, also of course, um, you 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 can go online uh, and purchase these and be printing your figures off within minutes, as opposed to waiting for that twenty-one days delivery. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of Europeans. Um, I, I hate to bring up the uh, the B word, but in a post Brexit world, you know, uh, a lot of Europeans do tell me that they they come to come to me because they're sick of waiting on delivery times from Britain. Like postage has got more expensive, and it's with customs things that people like in Germany can run into. Uh, yeah, they they've switched to SDLs because I'm quite proud to say it, but you know, a lot of miniature manufacturing is done in the UK, and um, it's it's more difficult for Europeans now that. I, I don't know about right now. I don't know if they've sorted out the custom stuff by now, but that had been feedback I was getting. 
I, I think you will still find more traditional figure manufacturers still struggling uh, to supply uh, people on the continent um, because of the various issues. Um, and I know they're trying to find some workarounds around that, but uh, sales from the continent seem to have dropped off markedly for the physical products. So STL files just seem the perfect perfect answer, really, for the, for the European customer. The other thing that that's kind of fun is um, I'm going to be doing Gallipoli at Joy of Six. And in the grand tradition, um, as you know, sure, um, it will be three tables, four by six, joined together to cover the Battle of Saribaya and the landings at Suvla Bay, which happened at the same time and basically in the same geography. So, so that will be illustrated. So I can get things like the Beatles, which were the landing craft from, from other manufacturers. But I got interested in having some of the piers that were built. So I can just get out my 3D software and boom, I've created and printed these um, landing piers based on original photographs of Gallipoli. And now, of course, with Henry's figures, the Ottomans, Anzacs, and so forth, um, yeah, if folks want to see them and they're going to be at Joy of Six in Sheffield uh, in, what is it, 3rd of July, then by all means come along and have a look because uh, you'll even even get the opportunity to see them painted up. Am, am I going crazy or do, do I remember you designing a ship as well? Oh yes, yeah. The um, the the main one which I designed from literally from scratch was the um, SS River Clyde. Well, actually, we we would call it uh, an LTS. Um, it, it was the landing troops um, ship, and they basically ran it ashore at. Um, um, V Beach, and so I, yeah, I created a 3D model of it with its holes cut in the in the hull to be able to allow men to get off, and the um, machine gun pillboxes, which were, were created out of sheet metal up on the front, and so on. Yeah, it's great fun. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love ships. Ships are they're very zen to design. I love them all the figures, <laughs> if I'm honest. You put a lot of effort, haven't you, Henry? I've seen, I've followed you and seen some of the designs that you come up with for the boats, the big boats. Yeah. So, well, I mean, um, uh, if I'm honest, they don't make as much money, but they had to say it's just, it's, it's a part of a hobby. I feel really needs activity and maintaining. There's not so many people doing it, so I enjoy have it. We, have, you're on the have, Patreon, yeah. Uh, have we got boats in this Kickstarter? Have we got a, a monitor? Can I see? Yeah. Yes, there is one. It's the bottom left coastal motor boat there, I remember. But uh, And I think we did have one for Gallipoli. Yeah, M-Class Monitor is £90,000 there. So yeah, there are two two naval things. Oh, and we got British Naval Infantry, but that's for 1914 Western Front, I think, isn't it? When they're still dressed as sailors. So. I have to say, Henry, one of the least surprising things of this spreadsheet that you've sent with the... Great War stretch goals is the Gallipoli element. 
<laughs> with Robert's involvement. I thought that's... Uh... <laughs> oh, how, how could you have guessed that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's this in, in a, in a <laughs> telepathy, I think. If a, if a very kind gentleman is going to help you uh, for free print off samples for a lovely podcast personality, you have to bribe him a little. You know? <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it looks really comprehensive, and, and the whole thing does. And I've, I've mentioned this many times before, uh, probably both to yourselves and, and elsewhere, that I am endlessly fascinated by this technology, um, but but still yet to dip my toe. And it will happen. It will happen. It's only a matter of time. Uh, it's when, not if. To anyone listening uh, now, please, could you write in the comments if you would like uh, Sean to release a series where he gives you updates every day of his various print catastrophes, <laughs> how he's muddling through? Yeah, yeah, it would be muddling through as well, absolutely. Um, everybody <laughs> is. Everybody is to begin with. Yeah, I, I'm no scientist, so uh, the, the idea of chemicals and... Uh, and uh, printing and lasers just baffles me, but uh, I, I am endlessly fascinated. And, uh, and obviously, I've got the evidence in front of me, which I will post some pictures up across my various social medias uh, uh, of these because um, I've been I've been stunned by uh, the quality. Um, okay, so uh, the, we're sitting around about ten and a half thousand pounds, Henry, at the moment, aren't we? Um, and clearly, the sky's the limit for how high that can go, but. Uh, uh, I think we've got stretch goals out to twenty-five thousand pounds. That would that would uh, be a nice number to hit. Te technically forty thousand, but that's on the early access uh, column there, ah. which I'm not really expecting to get funded. Uh, we, we introduced. <laughs> There's a challenge for you, listeners. There's a challenge for you. <laughs> Reverse psychology, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't play. Um, we introduced that with the last Kickstarter um, because people were keen to get me working on the Seven Years' War, and that one actually did unlock. I think that was. 25k goal, something like that. So I mentioned that we have seven years war figures in circulation. That's how that happened. And unfortunately, Sean, I know you just finished a project, but so this might not be of interest to you. But the the early access goal there is for the American War of Independence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's come just at the wrong time. <laughs> that, that, that's my passion project. That's that's where I can be the um, the Robert Dunlop for myself. That um, oh, okay, yeah. yeah, I love, yeah. yeah. But uh, sorry, but away away from that, yes, in, in a practical sense, uh, the limit is 25, oh, 26K if you want the coastal motorboat. Um, personally, maybe I shouldn't shoot myself in the foot with a lack of ambition, but I'll be happy if we can at least hit 16,000 because that's when all the artillery is sorted. And I think when we have a set that has infantry and artillery, that's at least good bare bones World War One. But I know some of, some of the people following this project will want the cavalry. Um, that's a bit further down. Uh... Well, if every person that downloads this episode um, goes in and buys one STL at fifty at uh, thirty-five pounds and the the associated blender for for fifteen pounds, so pledges fifty pounds, then you will blast fifty fifty total. You will blast through. So there is a challenge for um, every, every listener uh, to help Henry out uh he's obviously slumming it at the moment somewhere in mexico he's not quite sure where he is he's inside a bag but i, I think he's safe <laughs> i think he's safe but uh um is there anything else you'd like to uh, uh to tell the listener about henry or, or robert about the project or anything 
coming up in the future? Um, I guess I would say to anyone who isn't familiar with my work, uh, please, I don't know if, uh, if Sean can post the link or whatever, but take a look at my prospective release schedule. You can see maybe if World War 1's on your bag, there might be something nice coming along. Um, essentially for me, I am working on this. Obviously, yes, I want to make money. I want to maintain my standard of living out here in the developing world. But uh, I, 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 I want to keep doing it. But that, that, that plan there really is, well, it's, it's just my passion. It's everything that I, I want to fulfill. I want to be able to, like, maybe if this doesn't last forever, things sort of uh, taper down a bit. I at least want to know that I covered most of that stuff because... Uh, in the same way as like I'm sure a lot of you can empathize when you're when you're painting your models and you might have a film, let's say you're doing Napoleon and you have Waterloo playing in the background, or you listen to some period music, whatever, you know, it's a kind of cathartic escapism, right? For me, 3D modeling is exactly that. I, I get to read about this stuff, I put the images in Blender that I'm copying from, and uh, it's it's historical immersion. I'm a history graduate, I, I love it. So I guess all I all I'm saying is um, yeah, the Great War is like the thing. Just look at the other stuff I want to cover because I'm not going anywhere. I want to work on this stuff, keep it going. But for those of you that, that are familiar with my work and have stuck with it, um, I can always say thank you so much. Um, both the people that return to this geek startup, also just the people who you know, give the words of moral support and whatnot. Because like, I, I need the reassurance from time to time that I'm not crazy, I suppose, and that I'm actually serving a practical purpose. Because I'll tell you what, uh, where I am right now, there are a lot of remote workers, a lot of uh, self-described entrepreneurs, and when they're talking about their various, I don't know, SEO, marketing kind of things, they're like, oh, what do you do? And I say, I design toys. Um, the sideways looks I get. I, I, I need the confirmation that, uh, that I serve a useful purpose in society, or at least more useful, perhaps, than someone doing SEO. Oh, God, I put my foot in it again. <laughs> well, uh, I, from my perspective, Henry, I, I doff my virtual cap uh, towards you because to follow a passion like you have over the last couple of years or so um, with such uh, vigor that, that you have, what, the energy that you put into these Kickstarters is inspiring. Um, and and I think as each iteration of each each Kickstarter comes along, you're you're clearly honing your art as you uh, develop your your skills, designing these figures and producing what uh, the Wargamer wants. And I, I will just echo, or sorry, repeat the comment I made that if if you want nice things and we the Wargamer has to support people like Henry in these endeavours uh, to to keep on going because. Uh, they they are quite tremendous. Um, anything from yourself, Robert, to finish with? I know we're going to be uh, catching up at the Joe Six in Crikey about five weeks' time, I think. Yes, yes, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um, the only thing I would add is that there's been mention of the Discord group that Henry's set up, and for anyone not familiar with Discord, it it's a collaborative kind of um, website where you can chat and, you know, Henry shares his kind of roadmap and work and others, you know, show off their painting skills and so forth. But, but what's really important about it is that if somebody is interested in getting into 3D printing, 
there's a wonderful community that have been there and done that and you know they've got the t-shirts with some of the failures that can happen and they're great they're wonderful they're really supportive to anybody who's kind of not sure and wants to get maybe a little bit more background to it or they you buy your first printer and you want to try to hone your skills on that it's a great group to to support that as well so that's something that isn't so obvious with the, the Kickstarter. It's a lovely community, and I will take one minute to quickly address this in case anyone's listening and didn't even realize it happened. But um, back in January, uh, Facebook deleted our, um, our, uh, our community group and gave absolutely no reason why it happened. And this, this group that had a thousand members in it, which was actually quite active, um, just disappeared and a lot of people who were in it never even realized it happened. I, I would imagine there might even be some people who think they're still in it and just think the group's gone quiet. But uh, we did make another one and it is, unfortunately, it's not as active as the old one used to be, but that's largely in part because we moved to Discord because we realized, uh, well, I realized, sorry, that uh, some arbitrary decision can just completely strip you of your means to communicate with your community. Like I, I didn't even have a way to tell people what had happened. I got concerned emails over a few weeks asking if something had happened to me. Um, so yeah, this, this Discord emerged out of that, and it's it's a community that you know I, I moderate and I can control. I mean, you know, to, to a reasonable extent, but uh, that's where most of the activity happens now. So maybe if you were following on Facebook and you wondered like what happened to that group or why the current group isn't so busy, it's because most people who are discussing and posting things, it, it is over on there, and um, it's it's a highlight of my morning. Um, especially with this time difference now. Uh, I turn on my computer, I see these notifications, and there's always something nice that's been written or someone who wants to show some things they've painted. Um, some really beautiful Seven Years War figures from James Tozer at the moment that's making me want to crack on with those, but yeah, World War One for now, of course. Um, yeah. Excellent. So I, I will post up a link uh, to Discord, the, the Discord channel, if that's okay with you, Henry. And of course, uh, we'll uh, encourage people to, to visit there because it sounds like a, a great space to share the passion uh, for your work and the hobby in general. Um, okay, gentlemen. Well, it's as usual. It's been fantastic to speak to you. I'm not going to ask either of you for a book for the virtual library or... <laughs> But I will hold you though to the, the, the there's usually two uh, pledges I ask for from guests. One is for a book for the virtual library, but the other is that you will both return at some point in the near future. And Henry, I, I feel like uh, we may be opening up some lines of communication very soon for uh, the, the next production from Turner Miniatures. Oh yeah, I mean, if I if I miss grabbing you for the for uh, the AWI, I'm definitely going to grab you for the Seven Years War, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to have you back on for that. Um, so, uh, Henry, uh, all the best for the future and for this Kickstarter, which has got well, it will have six days left by the time I put this up. So, uh, is the 26th of May now? It'll go up tomorrow morning, the 27th. So we'll have six days to run. Let's see how high we can get that total. Uh, and and see what you can unlock uh, for Henry to start panicking about sculpting and uh, getting, getting these things done. I'm, I'm guessing the turnaround is going to be pretty quick, as it Henry it usually is, isn't it? Yeah. I, um, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, this time I'm, I'm just trying to think. I have got the roadmap uh, public, so you can actually see everything I've worked on already. But uh, off the stretch goals that have already been unlocked, everything that's related to heads has been done. Uh, 
and I'm just cracking on with the extra STLs now. But yes, I, I don't want to get too preemptive, but with the, let's say it hits about 16,000, I think about two months from now is when everything will be completed. That's a pretty good turnaround. Uh, so all the best with that, Robert. Uh, as usual, it's been great to speak to you uh, and, and hear your input into, into this project. And I very much look forward to catching up with you at the Juro 6. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it, Sean. Yeah. Uh, okay, gents. Well, thanks very much, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, thank you very much for having us. Yes. And thank you, thank you, Robert, as well. I just want to say that publicly. You've just been of amazing help right. with this. Pleasure, Henry. I, I want that on the record. So, yeah. <laughs> happy, happy canvas bag uh, travelling. <laughs>